0: Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning,
1: everyone. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And here in Arrowtown, whoa, it's getting cold, getting chilly. And there's snow on the hills. So everyone that skis is getting excited about the skiing. I'm getting excited about the skiing, and I don't ski. But I take the kids up. And I love going up into the mountains. There's something about the air, the snow, and the clear, crisp winter's morning, looking at the view. We do live in a great country. And we've got a great show coming up. We've got Gemma Verhoeven. She is another sufferer of this extraordinary disease, EDS, that we learned about from Sarah King, a, a genetic disease that affects your cartilage. And we'll be talking to her about her experience of the disease, her experience of the medical system. And it's so interesting how strong these women are to get through this disease and get through the medical system that is sort of, given the nature of this disease, always treating the symptom and never getting to the underlying cause uh, of those symptoms. We also have along Richard Barge to talk to us about hemp and no he's not a dope smoking rastafarian it's uh, an extraordinary plant got extraordinary possibilities according to Richard we're going to learn about them so stay tuned reality check radio real talk with Rodney Hyde thank you for listening it what I want to achieve with RCR is conversation
4: with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission.
0: Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.
1: You're on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Pick us a text, 2057 send us an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We had that, how would you describe that interview with Sarah King? It was wonderful in so many ways, and horrifying and tragic in other ways. And what an amazing mother, wife, human being to go through all of that and to come, still be smiling. Well, we're uncovering more about this disease. And we have with us Gemma. Good morning, Gemma.
2: Good morning. How are you, Rodney?
1: Well, I'm very, very well, but I've got to ask you a question. How yes. do I pronounce your surname?
2: Ah, it's Verhoeven.
1: Verhoeven.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> is it Dutch?
2: It is, yes. My husband's name, so.
1: Verhoeven. <laughs> yes. Well, it's a nice name and it's easy to say, Gemma Verhoeven. Yeah. Okay, Gemma. Now, we learned a little bit about EDS, but I'd like you to explain for listeners and for me uh, how you explain EDS, and then we'll go back to what it was like before, how it developed and how you got it diagnosed. Are you comfortable
2: with that? Yeah, sounds good.
1: What's EDS?
2: EDS is ehlers Dendros Syndrome. Um, for me, that means um, things like your connective tissues, your ligaments, um, and everything that sort of surrounds that. Sort of, yeah, if you, you think past those kind of things, that includes like your teeth, your eyes, um, your internal organs, and all those types of things. So the collagen that the body produces or doesn't produce, um, in our case, that gene mutation means that the, the variant isn't there to take the collagen um, to make that so that those ligaments are, are strong. So um, so EDS um, is also quite painful in terms of aching joints and things like that. Um, a lot of people get um, dislocations or sublocations. In my case, I tend to Kind of split li- uh, ligaments and things like that. So kind of like tear hamstrings and things like that. So that's that's more me um, in terms of EDS on that scale. So
1: it's always the connective tissue, but because the connective tissue is so central to the body, it's on everything: organs, yeah. joints. It's not just tendons. When you have this what shall I call it? Weak collagen, weak connective tissue, defective connective tissue, the symptoms can be many and varied.
2: Oh yeah. 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 It's 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 really hard to connect those dots, I think, for a really long time. But um yeah, it just affects, because it's such a spectrum disorder as well, um, it, it just affects everybody so differently. But I mean there's a lot of co-mobilities to that too. So you know, like POTS syndromes um, and those types of things. So they all kind of systematically kind of stick together, if that makes sense yes. as well. So um,
1: so tell us who you are and what you were like before you discovered that you had these symptoms and then the process by which you got it diagnosed.
5: Yes.
2: So you
1: you wouldn't have picked this up when you were
5: 10.
2: No, no. And and that's the thing. And so you were just kind of that extra bendy kid at school, um, could do some really cool gymnastic stuff and things like that. So
1: you're thinking, oh, look at me. I can do this and I can bend and do the splits.
2: Yeah. And and everyone's like, oh, wow! put your hands behind your back and prayer or do crazy things with your hands and stuff. And so it sort of became one of those party tricks. But um, you don't really think much about it because obviously it's not a known condition. And so sort of as I've got older, um, things kind of started to, I guess the wheels kind of started to fall off. Um, And I guess as you sort of get up to be an adult and have those adult responsibilities, sort of those stresses kind of overcome you as well. And so it's sort of like finding that fatigue was kicking in, a lot, or i so the, f-
1: the first thing you were noticing was getting tired.
2: Getting tired, I have quite achy joints. Um, I'd sort of fatigue earlier, I'd need to go to bed. Or, um,
1: how old were you I, when you, this is happening?
2: I would have been, I would have been in my 20s, um, uh, but also bear in mind, also other comorbidities. I also had endometriosis as well. Uh it was also dealing with endometriosis along. is
1: that a, is that a lady's complaint? Yes. are you allowed to explain what it is to a man?
2: Yeah, so endometriosis is where the uh, lining of the uterus doesn't go where it's meant to. So it's where uterine tissue shouldn't be. So it's growing inside um the abdominal wall, um and then it kind of sticks in the air. and and then, you know every month, it builds up, but what's happening is it's building up also inside that abdomen. And then it, it oh also, yeah, perhaps horrific pain. And you got bloating, and then I'd have days at home on my couch really sick, uh, with, with the endometriosis. Um
1: and of course was, that's being diagnosed. You were diagnosed as having endometriosis. Yeah,
2: so I was diagnosed with having endometriosis when I was just turned twenty one and I had had horrific periods my entire life um and then to meet someone who who believed me on that aspect and they did a um laparoscopy surgery uh went in and found it, so he removed it at the time and so then it was diagnosed then as endometriosis um and that that for me probably should have been the first warning sign, but you know, life carries on i was I was encouraged um to have children, endometriosis at the time also um wasn't very um publicly aware. He was talking sort of almost like 15, 20 years ago now, um, when the sort of all that was happening and there was no awareness um, around that either. Um, and then it sort of got into more of the body aches and the pains. Um, and then they're like, well oh, you know best thing for you now is have children. So at this point I'm 24, 25. I want my career. I do want kids. So, I chose to have my children um, at that time, thinking that it was going to cure me,
5: mm-hmm.
2: um, which it didn't. Um, and then, after my son turned one, I ended up having a hysterectomy because I got another condition huh. called adenomyosis, um, which um, it eats the inside muscle wall of the uterus, and so it's creepy, a-
1: creepus.
2: Yeah, so it was decided at that point that it was pretty um, urgent for me to have that hysterectomy. So I had the hysterectomy at 29. Um, and I thought, right, great, this is the start of my new life. This is going to be absolutely wonderful. my, my babies are running around. We can get on with life. Um, and then things started, kind of take a bit of a slide again um, with the old abdominal pains, and not really going, not really understanding what was going on. And then I went back to um, my gynecologist, and he's like, You've got abdominal adhesions. Um, so he went in to have a look. And so they found that my ovaries and my bowels were all kind of sticking together, and they were sticking to the back of my um, spine and things like that, which was causing me to have quite a lot of backache, uh, things like that as well. So, hey, I mean, we did that process. You think that was one? I did, We 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 did that three times. Three uh, times, three times it, it came back. Three times, um, and then and each ret-
1: time that operate.
2: Each time he operated, yeah. Um,
1: and I understand with EDS again. This is from Sarah that getting over an operation is much tougher for you.
2: Yeah, it is. But see, then I didn't know I had EDS. No. and that's the scary thing because they
1: were treating the symptom, really.
2: Yeah. Because if they'd realized that, then I don't think they would have gone in and done such an invasive yeah. surgery because now it's, it really has damaged um, all that stomach stuff for me, but we're, we're getting there.
1: Uh, and, and each time they were doing this, you were thinking, oh, well, I'll do this operation and I'll be fixed.
2: Yes. Yeah. I'm going to be just fine. This is great. This is the last one. I'm getting out of this and getting my life back. I know. Yeah. And um, I know it just and it, the wheels just continued to fall off at that point. I think I I hit 30. You um, know, had a few teeth problems and that with um, with you know having pregnancies and stuff. So had a few teeth stuff happening. See, once again, teeth stuff, teeth problem, EDS um, also related. So. Wasn't aware that it was EDS. So at the time, I'm thinking, oh my god, I'm either really stressed out or whatnot. I feel like my hair's falling out and my teeth are falling out, and you know, I've got two kids to run after, and now I've got like these really bad, you know, body aches at the end of the day. And I'm thinking, you know what? That's because I'm really tired running around after two kids. I'm absolutely exhausted. I'll get in a hot bath. We'll do it all again tomorrow. Um. Mothers. Yeah, Amazing. I know. The-
1: <laughs> Mothers. God that tough.
2: Yeah, you do. Um and then it probably wasn't until really it was only two years ago. Um, or well as symptoms continued to get worse, and I went and saw my GP who said, Oh well, you know, senior to a rheumatoidologist is probably just a bit of fibromyalgia. Um Blah, 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 blah. So I went and saw a rheumatoidologist here, and she was like, can't see anything wrong with you. It's probably fibromyalgia. Take it easy on the exercise and go home. So I would have thought the rheumatoidologist at that point probably would have picked up um, the EDS because they do the full BATEN score and all that process for EDS, um, but she didn't diagnose me for that. She told me it was fibromyalgia.
1: Sorry, you mentioned a score.
2: That's yeah. a score
1: that's diagnostic for EDS.
2: Yeah, it is, and that's, that really does test your flexibility in joints. You're asked to do a series of different things, um, and that would show how far those joints could bend so back that. or um, recess back um, into the joints.
1: And so. she did that test?
2: She did that test, Yeah. And she's like, well, you know, there's nothing particularly remarkable here. You're a little bit hypermobile, do a bit of weights, do a bit of walking. Um, that's all I can really do for you. So I kind of left there like, well, you know, I accepted that at the time. Mm. I well, you it would. Was better.
5: No,
1: you don't. It's only looking in hindsight that you can see it.
2: Yeah, so I'm like, well, you know, that's 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 my lot. I can accept that. I'd been to see the GP. We'd sort of set up some um, medication to kind of combat that. Um, but things still were not improving. In fact, things were continuing to um, get much worse. Um, and then I went back to my GP, and they are like, oh, well, it's just a stomach bug. Go home. Um, so all the stomach stuff is starting to happen. So... Um,
1: and what are your family and friends and work colleagues? What are they making of this? because you're just continually sick.
2: it's It's really hard. I think you you really learn who your family and friends are. Um, it's definitely can be a very isolating uh, situation to to be in, but um, hey, look, I've got some really amazing family and friends, I've got my amazing dad and my husband and all that all here um, constantly to support me or to help work or, you know, and I, and I really couldn't do what I do now or to be in a functional space if I didn't have that type of support behind me. Um, yeah, because it'd be really easy for people to be like, oh, well, it's, it's not my problem or shit, you're sick again or we just don't invite you out anymore. Or,
5: yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, like
2: yeah. I guess it gets this, it has its challenges for sure.
1: And it's easy to be sympathetic, but very hard to live with, particularly when you have kids, you're working, you got a house, got all the pressures of living these days, yeah. and then your wife is constantly in pain and sick, and you don't understand why, nor does she.
5: No.
2: No, and and for a long time with my, my poor husband and we're just running around through GPs, like couldn't find anything wrong. And this is a
1: lot of money, right?
2: It's a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of everything to, to be able to get in and see a specialist and then wait for a scan or get this and that done. And this really has been, you know, over you know two, three years now that, you know, we're still trying to. I guess, piece it all together uh, in terms of what was happening.
1: So. so you came back from the rheumatologist. They said, oh, it's probably a bit of fibromyalgia. I can't pronounce
2: these. <laughs> fibromyalgia?
1: Yeah, you're so good. You should be a doctor. You're so good at this stuff. <laughs> and then you probably know more now with all this. Um, you're certainly being more sympathetic. And you're now dismissed as, oh, you got a stomach upset. Then what?
2: Then I started to get really sick. So I started having. out.
1: Oh, I thought you were already really sick.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's no, pretty I, funny. No, I mean,
1: I'm I, sorry to laugh, but like I'm sitting <laughs> here saying, God, you were sick. And then you got really sick. Oh my God.
2: And I got really sick. I got really sick. Um, I was vomiting. I had really bad tummy problems going on. wasn't being able to, to eat properly. And it's just like, and some of these symptoms were really just kind of creeping on. And so, once again, you could I could kind of dismiss it, I guess, as a mother that you do, and just kind of be like, "Well, just wasn't hungry that day, or I feel a bit off that day." It's just a part of everything else that's going on. Because
1: um, this is your everyday experience now.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is, and so sort of like, well, this is outside of my so-called new normal. Yeah. Like, how do you How do you express that to? Um, a doctor or GP that those symptoms that you have, it had now changed. Um, um, And it was, it's been really hard because they never, there's a lot of doctors who have never listened. I went and saw um, a gastroenterologist who said, well, you know what? You've only got IBS, a bit of a, a funny tummy. Here's some fiber caps, go home. You'll be just fine. And I got out of her office and I, and I got in the car with my husband and I think I broke down and cried and said, I, I wasn't heard today. And I said, I, feel, I actually feel really worried because, you know, I genuinely knew something was really, really, really wrong. And sort of to be dismissed in a way that was kind of like, once again, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just fibro. You're chronically ill. You just have to accept your position in life. Here's the pills you need. Go away. We don't know what to do with you. This is too complex. Um, We've done all these tests. We've done all your labs. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you. Go home.
1: Um, And you know there is something wrong with you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, are we. And, 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 And
5: so, your conclusion is thinking, did that lady hear one thing I said?
2: Just how horrible it is. You're sitting there thinking, you know, at worst, you've got, you know, bowel cancer, you know what I mean? And yeah. you're sitting there. She's not even prepared to go in and have a look. So I'm a little bit screwed. So I went and saw another specialist, and she put me on to another gastroenterologist. And I marched back into my GP and said, hey, I, I want to go and see blah, blah, blah. So I got in and saw this particular specialist and for once it was kind of like I was being heard and that someone was listening and that um, he really took everything that I had to say on board and was really taken quite seriously. So um, he ran a lot of tests um, and we got to the yeah. bottom of things and we ended up doing this particular test called a gastric emptying study Um done at the, at the public hospital um it's like toast with radioactive scrambled eggs um uh, you let you go up there and camp for the day so I was up there for over five hours um and they, they have got a set time to eat this meal so you've got like five minutes to eat this piece of toast um and then you go in and they scan your stomach full that food and then they'll do another one at 30 minutes and then they'll do one hourly after that um and that shows whether the stomach is emptying at its correct rate. Um, and so I had that done and got those results back. And so those were that my stomach was quite impaired so that my stomach wasn't emptying out into the small bowel at all, and then was diagnosed with gastroparesis, which is the paralyzation of the stomach. Um, that one was a uh, has been a particularly difficult and challenging diagnosis, I think, for me, but um, that was only recent. That, that only happened August last year, after two years of kind of battling with um, my doctors and GPs, um, but in a sense, there was a sense of relief that there was an answer to what was actually going on and that they could actually find um, actual genuine reason for what was happening. Um, inside my body, but, um, you know, I've got part of the esophagus uh, that's just above the stomach, so that junction there um, is severely impaired and also the outlet of the stomach, um, the pylorus valve from the stomach to the small bowel, that is also severely impaired. So what happens is when you have, for a normal person, you eat a meal, num, 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 num. Sits there, it's gonna digest and that process takes two to three hours max and it's completely emptied out of your stomach and you're ready for another meal. Um, And the rate of which my stomach empties out is I eat a meal and that might take me 12 hours for my body to empty that out of my stomach. And so it's just kind of sitting there, doing not much, hanging out. um,
1: And getting a little putrid or something.
2: Yeah, it does get a little putrid, yeah, so we' like some sort of like are oh, the other symptoms come in play, so um, but yeah, it's, it, did it, that's you,
1: Did you find that upset in your tummy and below? Did it affect your thinking? Like, did you go into a bit of a brain fog or anything like that, or was your mind okay?
2: Uh, I, it was it was a shock for quite a long time, um, I think it still is. I think there's something um, I feel better about the whole situation now than what I did when I had that in August. Um, it's only really sort of since I don't know the last couple of months really that we sort of feel that everything's kind of feeling a little bit more stabilised um, in my life and sort of kind of feeling like okay at the moment and okay where things are. And I feel um, that things are kind of a little bit more stable, but, you know, I, I can't eat solid food anymore. I am on, I have on you know, those wee medical drinks. Yeah. Yeah. So I have those. So those are my main meals now. Um, and then I have
1: oh my goodness.
2: snacks and things like that in between, but um, it is that, that in itself has sort of improved the quality of life in terms of energy and being able to sort of get on and be a mum in, in a sense as well.
1: So that was that diagnosis, but we still hadn't got to the EDS, had we?
2: No, no, I've, I've kind of um, hit that bit, not on purpose, mind you, Rodney. Yeah. Um, EDS, the EDS diagnosis came the year before my gastroparesis, so we were getting on the right track, and I, once I'd had that wall with the GPs and the doctors, I kind of started looking for other people like me or other other ways to sort of get help, and so I, I connected with the hypermobility clinic um, here in Christchurch uh, and met with a lovely lady there, um, and she diagnosed me with EDS um, and she specifically deals with EDS here in Christchurch and sort of takes on all those patients. So she got the ball rolling on that EDS diagnosis. And at the time, like that itself was a bombshell um, to deal with because you're thinking, oh my God, I've you know, great, I've got so far in life, but at the same time, like I've had all these surgeries and all these things that have happened that maybe we could have managed better that so that I could not have been in this situation. So um, getting that, that diagnosis for me for EDS was really, I, I guess almost like a golden ticket because then I could go forth in the right manner yes. to, to get the right people. And, and
1: Yes. And you know, what's a good thing to do and what's a potentially bad thing to do at that point.
2: Yeah.
5: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And EDS is a genetic issue. For some, it can be picked up; they can see it within the DNA. But is there anyone like your granddad, or any, does anyone else in your family have it that
5: you're aware of?
2: This is a great question, and it, you know, it's one that we talk about um, in our family quite a bit too. Um, Although this seems to be traits, um doesn't also necessarily pair up. Um we may have thought potentially by my um my mum's mum was probably on definitely within that scale of of Elos Dandros, although um I would probably say my mum would have been too, but um once again it's sort of not you don't know it's not normal unless you don't know it's yes, not normal. It's
1: only so. when you start to look that you see it. And um, men can get it?
2: Men can get it too. Um, It's less, less, men are less inclined to get it. It seems to be more female-predominant type disorder, but there are definitely men out there that that do have it and, and do suffer for sure. It's just that the ratio of numbers, women to men, women sort of outweigh that a little bit more as well. Yeah.
1: And the internet must be a marvellous thing because you'll be able to connect with sufferers through New Zealand and, indeed, around the world.
2: It's been amazing, yes, Um, and it's great. It's been a great source, I think, in terms of the only great thing I could say about social media is is sometimes having that ability to to connect with people um, on that level and to kind of feel – Normal and have it feel normalised, um, and that we're sort of all in the same boat together, and we can all kind of have a bit of a joke about it, but also sort of be there to support one another when when things crop up. So,
1: and would you say on your social media talking about EDS in New Zealand, would there be dozens or ones, or like how big is your little contact group of EDS sufferers?
2: We i I would say we'd be in the thousands um, no yeah, you know no it's it's a lot common than what you would think, um and there was conversations on really, really whether whether is as weird as what we originally had thought it was, so um it's there's definitely a few out there um yeah, there's definitely a few thousand on our page alone here in New Zealand, and then. You've got the international pages, which are like you know 50,000 plus. You think America wow. yeah. up there in huge numbers? Wow.
1: So there's a, there's obviously several in Christchurch.
2: Yeah, there is. Yeah, there's lots of us in Christchurch, and there's a few of us with um that also have gastroparesis as well. So although I haven't had much of an opportunity to meet with um too many here in Christchurch, um, we do connect obviously through um, social medias and. Mm. and, all that and-
1: and when you're um, presumably in the past, and to this day, there'll be people suffering EDS, totally oblivious to the underlying cause of their medical problems.
2: Yeah. No, it, there is. Um, and in a way, it's not a good thing. Um, potential there to, to save people from unnecessary things surgeries and stuff so um awareness really needs to be raised um and more doctors need to know about it and there needs to be a way for gps to be able to also diagnose that as well Um, Mm because there seems to be so much so many more people identifying or going oh hey i think it might be eds or i had a um a friend last year and i'm like hey all those things that are going on with you do you think it might be ELOS-Standos syndrome? Um, she went home and looked it up, and then she got diagnosed um, early this year. So it sort of, for her, that that was also life-changing. And she's sort of, she's 38 as well. She's gone through um, most of her life or half her life without really knowing what was going on or any re- reason for mm-hmm. what was happening to her body. So.
1: so right now, what's your situation, and are you on medication for this?
2: That's a great question. Um, I, I work where I can. Um, I have, have a, like, benefit of being um, working for myself a little bit on and off from home. So I can have days where I can work um, and days where I can put my, my computer down and feel okay with that and be able to walk away and take the days that I need to either rest or go to appointments and, um, or, or sleep and things like that. Um so in terms of that sort of to manage my work and responsibilities in between sleeping and naps and all that type of stuff. Um I do, yeah, I have I have a
3: whole
2: container of medication.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um so yeah, I, I have a lot of regular medication that I sort of have to take. Some for um pain and nerve damage stuff and one for um to help with my digestion, it's, it's a medication called Domperidone. So it helps helps the stomach um, empty out into the small bowel faster.
1: And you must be often off to the doctors and hospital still.
2: Yeah, chronic. Yeah, I was literally just there literally before our our time um, this afternoon today. So this is kind of like, um, yeah.
5: and what's the outlook i mean you don't
1: get over this so is it a sort of slow deterioration that you manage do you fight it off can you fight it off
5: how do you think about it going forward yeah it's (laughs) it's never really far from my mind Um, It's, I guess,
2: the reality is we we don't, I don't know if we really know um, the outcome as such, um, especially with the gastroparesis, because that's also a condition that's so unknown um, and so rare um, that um, even our specialists here still struggle to really know how to manage these conditions, and I think they they try and manage these conditions to the best of their abilities. But at the same time, I think there's a lot here that um, we we don't have access to as well, um, in terms of medication or um, medical procedures and things like that. That that may help uh, make things better. But um, I mean, our hope is that it, it won't deteriorate,
5: mm.
2: and that we would. able to manage and and stay stable where we are for a long period of time um I i would hate to see that that be the case um but at the same time we can only really take it day by day and week by week and sort of manage it as as it happens and as it pops up because um the nature of the beast is that every day is different um and the pain is always changing and even though yesterday might have been a good day, you know, tomorrow could be complete rubbish. Well, it
1: must be very hard being a parent and a wife in social settings because you never know what, you know, you might get invited to the soccer match or to a function. You can't foresee what you'll be like on that day, whether you'll be up to it. It must be sort of a bit of a downer socially.
2: can be. It, it can be. Um, but once again, I kind of try not to let it beat me down. Okay. Um, I always sort of try and even on my bad days, still turn up and still be there. Um, wow. You know, like, I, in some ways it's kind of nice to keep busy so that I don't have to think about it yes. at times, um, and I can just forget about it and, and do my things. But... Um, yeah um socially it is really awkward um because I can't drink either, so I've been I've been sober for like two, two years but um that 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 was really hard initially too because um we were always social drinkers and, and social eaters and all that kind of stuff so um as, even though my my function to to eat and party may not be quite to the same level as everybody else's I, st- I still think. There's no reason why I can't participate because, at the end of the day, no one's really going to be paying attention to whether you've eaten five hot dogs or five glasses of wine. So you could stand there with a glass, a glass of coke, and no one would have any idea. So, no. in, in terms of that, we can we can kind of uh, hide it. Hide but it it's quite a f-
1: I don't drink, and it's quite a funny thing because what you find is you get quite bored, and it it can be a long night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Because you're sitting there with your coke and everyone's having a hell of a time, and you're thinking, starting to look at your watch, and then you, I always go and eat because I love eating, yeah, and and I just sit there and get fat. Yeah, but uh, you can't even do that. You've got to go out and suck on some medical slush. I that must be tough because sort of food is so much of your family and social life. And I always, I'm always. I wake up looking forward to breakfast. I head off to work looking forward to lunch, and yeah. all the rest of the day I'm looking forward to dinner. I'm one of i. My life revolves around food.
5: Yeah, yeah. And, and no, that that, was mine.
1: that must be hard, you know. That little, oh, here's my container <laughs> through a straw. I know, but I think once I got past that kind of initial
2: shock and kind of like what is my life and how is my life and how do we move forward? I still like, I still enjoy cooking for my family and I still. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm a big baker. so I do a lot of baking and things. And can you have a
1: wee nibble or not at all?
2: Yeah, I'll have a wee like. Yeah, no, it's it's totally fine. (laughs) You can
1: have a little bit, but you just (laughs) got to. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, you've had a lot of interaction with the health system. And looking back on it, and reflecting on it, what would be your suggestion to the medical
5: profession? Uh, one of the things that occurs to me is, listen. But have you got a deeper? Are suge- you got
1: a suggestion for like what they need to do to be better
5: at their job? They they it really it, it's tough one. I think they really need to
2: know their patient, or to really just see beyond what they're there for their that, that specific time they've come in for their one thing that they're allowed to talk about for the fifteen minutes or whatever the time frame is, um, and nothing beyond that. Like, you know, they don't they just see oh, ah, you know, this or it's just that or just this, but not actually connecting any of the dots or looking back and going, oh, hang on, this has happened, like five times now or and you know and this is happening and that is happening like do you think there's more than you know like i think they just really need to to really yeah to to really listen um and to really look at the whole picture to really look at the whole patient um as a whole and not just one specific problem that it feels it
1: feels a bit broken doesn't it that it's all good if you have a sniffle or you need to go off to have a test whether you've got cancer and it can all be done with the algorithm and you fit the category. Mm
5: -hmm.
1: But for a condition such as yours, it needs a deeper look, doesn't it? And the system sort of doesn't seem to be, oh, you get sent off to a specialist, but you saw all the specialists and they still didn't pick that up. In fact, it was only your efforts pushing and pushing and pushing and demanding to see the right people that got you there.
2: Yeah, and it was, and man, that was it was so hard. Was, and you know, to, to be there to, to constantly, it was literally appointment after appointment after appointment after appointment. And sort of you're getting getting to that exhaustive point. Um but yeah, if yeah if I had not taken, as you said, I I wouldn't have if I had not taken that initiative or I had not someone um sort of, I guess, encourage me to take another a step to sort of work towards that. I think I would have been inclined to sort of accept what they were telling me to be true because you go there because you trust them and you trust their advice, that they're giving you the right information, that they're treating you for the right medical condition. Um, and even if it is a little bit more complex, so I really would have thought that they would have had a more wealth of knowledge Beyond that, that's sort
1: of like the jack of all trades and master Mm. of none. Um, Well, it's a good message for our listeners too, is that, you know, not to be so readily fobbed off because doctors are quite good at moving you along to the next patient and getting through their list. Yeah. And sometimes we have to say no, but of course it's hard when you're sick because you're sick. And um, that's when you need people in your corner supporting you and you sound like you have a wonderful husband and family. You're very blessed in that regard.
2: Yeah, I am. Thank you.
1: <laughs> well, they have been sorely tested. And in your husband's case, uh through sickness and health, really, oh,
2: yeah. I health. know. He really came through of very really well,
1: You are very, very fortunate. You chose well. Gemma, now I'm gonna just test it I got your surname right. Gemma Verhoven. Emma Verhoeven, it's it's Reality Check Radio. It's real talk with Rodney Hyde. We've been exploring EDS and what a devastating syndrome it is. What a complex set of symptoms it has, so hard to understand and track back, but it is genetic. There are tests for it, and it can be picked up for many people with a genetic analysis. It's real. And what a difference it makes even knowing what it is that's making you so sick in such a complex array. And we met Sarah King and Gemma and impressive woman to overcome such odds and still laugh, still take joy in their family, still look forward. Uh, it's wonderful. And I'm never going to grumble about getting up in the morning now because my joints aren't Painful, right? Not yet. Oh, you're wonderful, Gemma. <laughs> Thank you so Thank you. much for sharing us. We all the listeners and all the people here, we wish you all the very best. We appreciate you sharing your story with us. Uh, you're inspirational. You're oh, inspirational okay. for everyone that's that's sick. That was Gemma Gemma, Verhoven, mother, wife, worker wonderful human being you're on reality check radio oh send us a text at 2057 you might have a wee note for for Gemma a bit of encouragement or send us an email inbox at realitycheck.radio or a story to share please email us or text us Uh, it's wonderful to have you along
2: thank you very much Rodney it was it was a pleasure thank you for your time
0: this is real talk with Rodney Hyde Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.
6: Through the madness and the lies As they're holding back the truth No matter what they try I will always fight for you I will save your innocence They are trying to remove I am here at your defense And I will always fight for you Yes, I will always fight for you I will stand here in the way And I will not give up on you I will shield you from the pain In the battle on the field There is evil on the move But I hope that you can feel That I will always fight for you In the darkness of the times There's a light that shines the proof It'll soon reveal the crime So I won't stop this fight for you Yes, I will always fight for you I will brave every attack And I will not give up on you I will always have your back So to every single mother, father Stand up for your sons and daughters Do not back down, don't let up You are all they have for armor So make this a war to win. Look in their eyes and tell them that I will always fight for you. I will stand guard at the gate. And I will not give up on you. I will stop each shot they take. Yes, I will always fight for you. I will always fight for you. You've heard the
4: words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for... A reality check. Check. Reality check. RCR. Reality check radio. Rational discussion. Common sense. And open debate. For real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams.
3: Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question
4: to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker.
3: Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch.
4: The man who cares so much and whose background is for real. Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right? RCR Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived.
0: Thanks for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now.
1: You're on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and along this morning, we have Richard Barge from the, what is it, the New Zealand Hemp Industry Association. And coming up, they have their iHemp Summit. And what we're going to do is talk to Richard and find out more about hemp. But before we get into this, Richard, you sort of have a PR problem, I'm thinking, because when I think hemp, I think of a Rastafarian in a hippie bus smoking weed and that's all I think because I think hemp and I think Nandor Tedchos and the smelly people that are lying around, you know, spaced out. Then, to prepare for this interview, I went onto your website, iHemp and I'm amazed, right? Because there's this entirely different world but hemp conjures up a connotation does it not
3: well on Rodney and and thank you for the opportunity to to come on reality radio it's uh, it's a great privilege to to be here and a oh, great opportunity exactly. to to share some information and 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 this is exactly why we need to share information because we do have an image problem you're quite right. Um, it, it, it and that's um, you know that stereotype that people have when you hear of hemp. Um, others um, would say, "Oh, I used you know," especially if they're a little older, might say, "I used to use the hemp cordage," and they would have an understanding of the industrial use of it. But um, generally, when people, um, and particularly politicians, but most people, when they hear of hemp, the next word to connect to that is cannabis, and then the next word invariably out of their mouth is bad. So, you know it, it really is a, an image problem. And, and what what we're about is the low THC um, version of cannabis, um, which is by definition, in our regulations called industrial hemp. So ours is more of an industry and and uh, and hopefully we'll get to talk about the many, many uses and, and the way it can be um, utilized in our economy and our environment. Um, but yes, that image problem is, is quite a quite a stigma to overcome. Have you um, thought
1: was, of changing the name?
3: <laughs> yeah, it has come up. Um, um, and and to be fair, I mean, you know, the the, the whole thing with Facebook, for example, um, a lot of companies use Facebook to get traction in the market and share their message. Because we're industrial hemp, even Facebook classifies us as um, cannabis or or, or oh, wow, you know, man. recreational. So so they ban our you know, we can't boost anything. Um, so yeah. if you you know, and a lot of people like um, that would set up a, a Facebook site and then they get um, banned by Facebook individually, then they can't even use it very well either. So, you know, there's lots of things to consider um, in that multimedia marketing sort of space about industrial hemp. But you're right. I mean, do we do we come up with another name or another acronym? Um, there, there is some you know, opportunities there because uh there, there, there you know there is some words that can incorporate um seed and natural fiber applications of of annual plants that you know could go under the heading of hemp. Um but it's it's a it's one that we we know that it um is recognized and we just need to do it probably a whole lot more. Um but if so, we had a Saatchi budget, you know, of course yeah. we would consider having a having a new so new name. when you say
1: industrial hemp you're thinking of growing a plant for the fibre and industrial products, not for the smoking of pot.
3: Correct. So um, whether that be recreational or medicinal. So, so we're separate from both of those things, recreational and medicinal. They tend to involve a higher THC um, plant, And industrial hemp in our New Zealand regulations is defined as having a THC content of less than 0.35%. So that's 0.35% or less. So in effect, we have no drug um, no narcotic drug in industrial hemp so there's no way that you would be able to use industrial hemp to get a psychotropic effect okay, that you would okay. be looking for if you were a THC user in that medicinal and recreational space now that that said that they have a lot more risk of diversion into that illicit Market whereas industrial hemp because it has no drug, value yeah. doesn't have a doesn't have that sort of um, risk of diversion into the illicit market so we we should just be another arable crop out there growing and you know we we can get into this as we go along rodney but you know there, there's an arable crop and there's also an horticultural crop and and, and if I just take a moment to explain why these two things are very very important particularly to new zealand um but they're also protected because the, we're talking about the United United Nations Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs, 1961. And New Zealand and many other countries are signatories to that. And in there, in Article 28.2, it says that all the controls that they have in place for the narcotic drug cannabis don't apply to industrial hemp for industrial and horticultural purposes. So they recognise that many countries... Have a traditional use of growing for, as you mentioned, for the fiber, growing for the seed, and growing for a horticultural purpose. And that's enshrined in the UN Convention on Narcotic Drugs and also protected by the Psychotropic Substances Act and the other uh UN conventions. So we don't we're not classified within them. We're we're sort of separate to that. And that's what okay. gives us an industry, Rodney, that you know we we're We've got a, a regulations in place in New Zealand 2006, the Industrial Hemp Regulations, under the Misuse of Drugs Act, which is a bit of a problem for us, but hopefully we'll be able to unpack that as well. But that, that's really the basis of why we can have an industry because the UN has acknowledged that this is a significant um, industry and, and it, has, it has to be protected, and we, we just want to get involved and, and move it forward. So in New Zealand at the moment,
5: if I want to grow industrial hemp can i
3: yes you can uh we had some trials in 2000 to 2005 which addressed the problem is there any risk of diversion is anybody interested in using um industrial hemp um illegally um for for you know for for that recreational purpose it was proved that there was no there was no um concerns there so there's very little risk so what we ended up with was um, the path of least resistance, I guess, was to put the hemp regulations under the Misuse of Drugs Act because cannabis was already mentioned in the Misuse of Drugs Act. So now we have the Misuse of Drugs Act in brackets, industrial hemp, uh, close brackets, regulations 2006. So since 2006, you could uh, you can now apply for a licence, and the licences cost $511, including GST um to grow industrial hemp and um, there's another type of license you can apply for that is a processing license because um, the way they treated the cannabis seed is also a classy drug so if you wanted to possess whole cannabis seeds industrial hemp seeds (coughs) excuse me for processing then you would need a license as well but those licenses last for three years And the cultivation licence is issued for one year, but you can do two renewals. So you can get three years out of that one licence. Now, that would mean that on that location where that licence is um, assigned, then you can grow industrial hemp. And that might be a trial, uh, you know, a very small area, or it could be 10, 20, 100 hectares, depending on your farming operation.
1: And are those licences granted readily or are there hurdles to leap um is there a problem in getting a license to grow hemp or renewing it? what is it you know that's
3: it's it's not difficult no um in the sense that uh it, it is run by the Ministry of Health we've just had a bit of a change of the team that's regulating it now the the team was involved with medicinal cannabis the regulatory authority agency also look after industrial hemp of course they're issuing licenses under our industrial hemp regulations nothing to do with the medicinal because we're not making medicinal claims you know so we're not part of medicine we're part of industrial and horticultural crops so to answer your question yes there is a, a form to fill out Um, there's a bit of repetition in the form. You'll have to know the location where you want to grow it. You'll have to have a responsible person, at least one person that can sign on the form. And that's the person that's in the um, firing line for if anything goes wrong, the Ministry of Health contacts that person. So not unusual to have somebody that takes the lead. Um, That responsible person would have to have a police check and as long as they don't have any um, major convictions, particularly for drugs or dishonesty, um, you know, there shouldn't be too much of a problem passing the police check. Um, then the location would be reviewed. And people have this thing because there was some guidance notes written a long time ago about being within five kilometres of a school. Actually, in the regulations, it's within five kilometres of a built-up area. And, um, you know, but there's there's some discretion there because even the people in the Ministry of Health understand that, you know, you can have a um, be in a quite private or a farmland area, but be quite close to a built up area. So, you know, there's some discretion there. So if you if you have a location that is quite close to a um, a built up area, don't necessarily write, write it off as a potential site. Because they can, you know, you can explain to them why this site is safe. And that would be things along the line of, you know, it's not visible from the road. You know, you have to go down the driveway and the field is behind the house. So there's, you know, ways around that. And there's a bit of, there's a few maze in the um, regulations. So there is some discretion um, that the team has. And so
1: when your hemp is growing in a paddock, does it look, exactly like a marijuana plant, but without the high concentrations of THC.
3: A little bit depends on how you're growing it, because in an arable paddock, it would be planted quite close together. Yeah. So the stems would be quite close and you would just have sort of one flowering head at the top that's turning to seed if you're growing for a seed crop. So um, the plants do look uh, very much alike. Yes, you're right. Um, that, that, that's, that's a fact. Um, But, you know, we have, that's why we get the license. So we can then say to the local police, which is one of the conditions of the license that we planted in this area, so there's no chance that they're going to I come see. around and go, oh, we found the mother load, you know. Yes. You know that's, that's not going to happen. So um, yeah, and then you've got to do an annual return every year. And if you do that, uh, which is a sort of a summary of your registers of what you've grown, what you've harvested, seed yields, and your seed register, then you would um complete that process. And then you, you should be fine to apply again for that renewal for the following year. Right. And so it's not, it's not arduous, but for a for an arable farmer who is used to planting cattle. And onions, it's like, well, I don't need that level of compliance. I don't want to do a police check. So, we do have a, a problem there. You know, the early adopters will always be willing to do a little bit of that sort of work, but ultimately, you know, it's got to be a lot easier to get on with if we want farmers to use it for phytoremediation purposes, for example, as part of their riparian well, we'll planting get, we'll, or sopping we'll, nitrogen.
1: We'll get into that, but um, that. Two thousand and six regulation must have been a big victory for you.
3: Oh, absolutely! You know, in in the in the nineties when we started, the New Zealand Hemp Industries Association was started by a chap called Matt McIntosh, a legend, legendary kiwi. You you should have him on your show at some point. Um, and in in nineteen ninety seven. So, you know, in, in the late 90s, there was a moratorium in government on anything to do with cannabis. So we couldn't even talk about industrial hemp because no one, you couldn't get past the word cannabis. So we uh, produced a five-minute guide to industrial hemp and sent that to all the politicians and yeah, so eventually... Good. Oh, very good. Thank you. And and and, and quite a few, um, you know, we, we had... Um, you know quite a few people, Rod Donald, Philipunkel, you know, those sort of people started to come out as the regular as the trial regime went in, in, into place. But lifting that moratorium was a was a massive um hurdle. Um but then we got a bit of momentum and it passed the trials with flying colours and and then you know then we're away and then it's like, well, you know, let's get it on. But that that word cannabis is still in our conversation. And and even though there's a uh, and an understanding that we're low THC industrial hemp, less than 0.35%, there's still we're still treated like a drug crop. You know, it's it's yes, it's quite yes. an interesting phenomena. So um but yes, a, a massive um uh, it, it's celebration a bit like,
1: it's a bit like criticizing barley because it makes alcohol, right?
3: Sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And there's 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 lots of those sort of examples. I mean poppy seeds yeah um you know and and but you can freely buy them and, and things uh well not yeah mushrooms is slightly different because there's um you know that they are um still legal, but poppies aren't illegal to cultivate you don't need a license mm. but yet you can produce heroin from them so um it's it's you know th- there, there are some inconsistencies there and we would like to work with the government on on these workability issues because we think that they can really um, streamline the process of li- issuing licenses and help us as an industry to really develop because um, you know it was wasn't until 2018 that we got a, a law change to allow us to, um, to have hemp seed as hum- as a human food so. You know, there's massive amounts of work to do because, of course, with a license, we can now grow industrial hemp. And in the regulations, it states that only industrial hemp can make hemp products, So, which is a great closed loop. You know, they've got a little bit of controllers and they issue the licenses. And only low THC industrial hemp can be made into hemp products. And as long as we're not passing off um, high THC products under the guise of industrial hemp, everything is fine. And once we have a hemp product, then we have to um, comply with all the other regulations. In the case of uh, hemp seed food, it's the food code. Got if it. you've got a building material, you'd have to apply for the you know coding for the building materials. If you have other types of uh, product, then you have to comply with you know whatever relevant legislation. That's what makes our legislation you know thirty three pages, I think it is, but it's very very easy to understand because all it does is issue licences to produce industrial hemp products. And once you have a hemp product, you don't need a licence. You know you can have that at home and eat it and, and wear it and you know, have a house built with it, and that's sort of thing
1: So uh, it's reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I'm talking to. Richard Barge, who's the chairperson of the New Zealand Hemp Industry Association. We're talking hemp. They've got a summit coming up. And we're learning uh, about this product, and we're learning about the difference between it and well, it's a cannabis plant, but it's not grown for cannabis getting high. It's uh, THC so low, it's irrelevant. Now, is there much the regulations changed in 2006 to allow with a license a growing of hemp is there much interest in growing hemp richard
3: uh, there, there there was um and there is and there continues to be um a growing interest although it it, it peaked in that 2018 19 period when the food law changed
5: okay and
3: just just to understand that the first application for hemp as a food went in in 19 19- 98. So 20 years later, because our food code um in the 2000s, we joined, as you possibly be aware, we joined Australia. So they get yes. nine votes and we get one vote. um So all our food ministers get together and vote on these issues. And the first sort of two, three applications that went in all got um the first ones got voted down unanimously. They don't tell us how they vote, it's a closed sort of a meeting, but uh, eventually. The Food ministers, um, our actually one of our food ministers, Honorable uh, Goodhue, um, uh, from Rakai, um, said enough is enough, and they said right, and and they, along with Tasmania, demanded that the food people actually put forward a proposal which was ultimately adopted, but it still took 20 years to get across the line. So we had an industry in 2006, but no markets for it, but luckily um we at the time had some politicians that um when we joined the Australian Food Safety Authority um said well no we've had hemp seed oil in the country this whole time we're going to allow that to continue and that was quite a quite a fight that they had on their on their um on their plate but you know um, honorable Annette King you know she stood her ground and made it happen which mm. protected the hemp seed oil industry in New Zealand which allowed the industry to continue because without that market there was no industry so we were fortunate that the hemp seed oil continued for human use by New Zealanders but not in Australia and then eventually people started using whole hearts and things in Australia and flouted the law and then in New Zealand obviously this uh, food code change happened in 2018 and we adopted it in 2019 so the area grown went up quite a lot you know we were Around sort of four or five hundred hectares went up to thirteen hundred um, for that season, and then they grew a lot of um, hemp seed. And then so now it's every sort of second year the this you know it goes up a little bit, but um, because most people have got enough hemp seed for their processing requirements, uh, it hasn't really carried on growing. That okay. said, though, um, you know we we just need better penetration because it's still early adopters. You know the the, the hemp food industry you know is by no means mainstream when it becomes i mean soya wasn't in everything was it you know no. 20 years ago and now it's everywhere so hemp seed could do the same thing this is a super food i mean you know the essential fatty acid profile omega-3-6-9 and 9, is actually in a perfect relationship to what the human body needs so it's it's a really smart plant it's got heaps of all the amino acids are in there and then you've got the dietary fiber um, the protein, the carbohydrates. You know, it's a wonderful, it's a superfood. It's a classic definition of a superfood. So the more people in New Zealand can be using and, and eating it, then the healthier they're going to be relieving pressure on, you know, all sorts of things in the health system as well. So, you know, we, we, we do, have again, um, a branding issue to get that hemp seed food out there, but it's it's happening. So and, what
1: um, I, I could use the hemp seed oil. I could use it like I'd use any other oil in the kitchen and in a salad dressing. Can I cook with the oil or do I just?
3: It's it's because of the essential fatty acid profile. It's not a, an oil that you would fry okay. with and eat. But it's like it's a fish that, oil. Yeah. It's
1: good and healthy too.
3: Oh, massively. Yeah. yeah.
1: Olive, yeah. yeah. And what other food comes from the plant that we could use?
3: well the, from the from the seed the byproduct from the yes. extraction of the oil is the hemp seed cake which has got heaps of protein and that can be refined into flour and um protein you know concentrates um you've also got the husks from the dehulling process and they have their own um, set of uh, values again a lot of dietary fiber you've got the heart which is after you've de it and you've got the husk off it you've got this inner heart which means it's no longer a seed so people can store that as a hemp product in their in their pantry and in their fridge what you've got to consider with hemp seed foods is don't expose them to heat light and air they're the enemies so okay, you know, okay. if you so you want to buy it in a dark packaging you know, so nothing that you can see through those sort of things. Now, when you're talking about other foods from the plant, well, then you start getting into the leaf, the flowering top, the roots. Now, as we've discussed, there's no, you know, no ne- negligible amounts of THC. So, those leaves and flowering tops can be made into teas, which are fully available over in England and things like this, uh, all over the world, really. I mean, you might recall um, New World had a pick up where they started selling hemp tea which is basically loose um industrial hemp leaf you know um ground up um but that that because it's not sort of recognized by the food code is a little bit more difficult in in Australian new zealand market but the the market for those products so we've sort of moved away a little bit from the fu- you know the functional food as far as nutrition with the omega-3s and amino acids and that sort of thing and now we're moving more into this functional food because of um and in sort of dietary supplements and natural health products now because what we're doing is using that leaf and the flowering top and instead of sort of talking about the nutrients in there we're now considering the uh, cannabinoids flavonoids and terpenes so there's you know 500 of um, chemical compounds in the cannabis plant 100 of them ish uh, cannabinoids and you, you know, we've talked about one in particular so far in our conversation, which is THC. And, uh, and, of course, we don't have a lot of THC, so we're not a psychotropic drug. But we do have CBD, and that's quite a big um, uh, market at the moment. It's gaining a lot of no, um, interest from consumers. In New Zealand or elsewhere? Oh, all over the world, the CBD... Yeah, I mean the 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 American I mean it's it's it, it's it's an economic boom and bust over in America they attracted so many farmers to it there was no processing equipment to handle it um so all these farmers sort of got burnt because they were producing a whole lot of plants that were grown for CBD and there wasn't really a market for it the market's there but there was no one to process it to the market and then they saturated the market so you know these, these things happen in, in an economic sense but um but the awareness of CBD uh, is is massive, and in the potential market. It's it's just one of those again, one of those markets in in the hemp industry that is um, you know double digit annual growth uh, rates, um, and and huge potential. And, and this is in this health and wellness sort of market, which, as you'll be aware, is, is just growing exponentially. So, you know, if, if people can get help with their sleep or, you know, relief from uh, um, anxiety or, or pain, or you know, people are looking for those, and they're getting um, some success with um, so, these products.
1: We've got the seed which can make oil and make a cake and, like, for flour. We've got the the flour of the. Plant that can make a food. We've got the leaves and we've got the roots. Um, And they have potentially good health uh, outcomes if you try them. If I went along to my local health shop, could I buy these?
3: Uh, Well, not. Not in most health shops, I wouldn't have thought, because um, what we now are getting into is a conversation about um, THC is a controlled drug, as you would imagine, under the Misuse of Drugs Act, but CBD is a prescription medicine. So, you know, it's a double whammy. Um, We now have the Misuse of Drugs Act hitting us on the head, although we're not really relevant because we have no THC, but our regulations sit under the Misuse of Drugs Act, so it's hard to avoid the connection. And you have the Medicines Act, which, of course, as as you'll be aware, is being changed to the Therapeutic Products Bill, including the natural health site, natural health products. So the Medicines Act can hit us on the head because CBD is a prescription medicine. So um, in general, the medicinal companies um produce these sort of products that have both thc cbd and you can get them as a prescription from a doctor um and that that way Um, anecdotally i mean people you know get on the net and you know um, have their cbds sent over from canada and things like that the people that are really that interested but it's not something that you could get across the counter at this stage from a pharmacy in new zealand legally now that said you know in the hierarchy of prescription medicines that's very tight control for CBD, which the WHO and the UN, you know, consider as um, pretty safe with very low risk. So having it as a prescription medicine is, is very high um, level of mm-hmm. compliance. Whereas, you know, having it as a pharmacy only and moving it down that medical classification is obviously something that we're all working towards. And there's an appetite, I believe, within the government to see that happen. But ultimately at a, at a dosage And a pack size that's appropriate for the market, then it should be available over the counter. You know, vitamin D, it it can be lethal at high doses, whereas, you know, you can buy it as a supplement over the counter. So again, there's ways of approaching this that can accommodate.
1: So looking at the hemp as a food, so far as I understand it, we've looked upon it. What you've told us is it's. A health supplement um with good products it can be made in tea um and there's the oil that has a good health profile with its amino acids and fatty no fatty i think it was the oil that you were saying what's it called the ratio of the oils
3: oh for the essential fatty acids, yes, and fatty acids. sorry
1: my mistake
3: but and that's hemp seed oil, right? yes. which is different, again, to hemp oil, which yes. is extracted from the leaf and the in the plant okay. and the uh, flowering top.
1: Is there a basic food that comes from the plant, or is it really in that supplement area in tea? It's like a, a um, more specialised. Is there a food like, you know, like I can cook a potato? Is there something like that?
3: Oh, well, the seeds themselves, which are in their perfect little container, you know, yeah. for storage – uh, I remember you know, when I lived in London, you'd go to Spitterfields Market, buy three kgs of seed, have them in your cupboard, and then you'd make your milks and you would grind them up and things like that. Um, so, yeah, as, as far as a… Um, you you'd know, buy three was, kg uh, of the seed? I used to back in the day, and then you'd come home and you 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 know, just put them on a skillet and dry roast them, put a bit of paprika or sea salt in them. That's a little bar snack while you're having a beer watching the game. No. You know, the, those sort okay. of things. Um, there's lots. They're of like ways. a pop,
1: like a like a sesame seed or something.
3: Sure, sure. Not yeah. not like a pop. It doesn't pop like a popcorn, but it, it does sort of open up. But it's very, very, very lovely to eat. And then so just. I feel as and though I know. haven't
1: lived. I feel as. Oh, like
3: and the, and, the, and the milk. I mean, the milk was just. It's it's yeah, amazing. Tell me about so, the milk.
1: How's the milk work?
3: Well, it's it's a very you know, in the in the simplest sense, mixing hemp seed with water, blending it up sifting off the, um, you know, the, the the grit, you know, the, yeah, the holes and it. things like that. Um, and you're left with this lovely white milk that's, there it is, you know, it's as <laughs> simple as that. And then you could turn that because it's it's got very similar um, qualities as an egg white. So, you know, making tofu and things like that is, wow. is the next step is just very easy. So it's it's as an ingredient hemp seeds, just a wonderful ingredient and um, can really add all sorts of nutritional benefits to products to food products, uh, from breads, cakes, as you mentioned, all the way through to to drinks, um, and then then of course you've got the hemp seed, o- uh, the hemp oil, which could be used in all sorts of um, now that uh, you've got
1: the seed oil, and then Correct. we've got the hemp oil from the plant itself. Tell us about the hemp
3: oil. So so that's more when people are talking about a CBD oil. Um, so they and and when you're talking in terms of um, using it as a natural health product or the health and wellness, people talk in terms of the entourage effect. So instead of taking one single isolated CBD and and having a you know a pill that is you know classic pharmaceutical um, approach of a single molecule in a pill, and you know prescription for that. So what people are doing and what people are more interested in is saying, well, no, we want to look at the synergistic relationship of all parts of the plant and and how it works when it's kept together. And this, this is sort of termed the entourage effect, where all the plant is blended up in, in extract. So you've got not just a CBD, mm-hmm. but you've got the other cannabinoids, mm-hmm. you've got the terpenes, you've got the flavonoids, and all those things are in this... Um, uh, whether it be a liquid or a tincture or however you're going to want to take it orally or on the body. And, and you know, it, it works better together. And, and the reason why this um, CBD and these cannabinoids are very important um, to the human body is because of a recent discovery in the 90s when the doctors realized there's this endocannabinoid system within the body. So this is a similar to a nervous system. Um, or a circulatory system. So we all knew how the blood flowed in the circulatory system, but we didn't know much about this endocannabinoid system. And endocannabinoid means um, endo produced by the body. So the body produces these cannabinoids. And what this endocannabinoid system does is keep homeostasis in the body. So if your body's um, out of balance in some way, this endocannabinoid system helps focus what's required to fix that and get you back into balance. Now, of course, as you can imagine, with high states of anxiety and toxins and you know processed foods and things like that, the endocannabinoid system—the cannabinoids our body can produce—need um, some support, need some help. And um, and lo and behold, you know those same cannabinoids can be found from plants. And it just so happens that the cannabis plant has um, a a very high concentration of useful um, cannabinoids that connect to receptors all over the body and all over the organs, a lot of it um, for THC, for example, in the brain. But the point is that it, it, it... the body has all these receptors, CB1, CB2 type receptors that, you know, attract cannabinoids and and we can supplement those endocannabinoids with this plant-based cannabinoid. And that's where this entourage effect really kicks in because all those cannabinoids are connected and they're already um, collected into that product. So there's massive amounts of work being done in this space, um, particularly by the medicinal companies, because they need to do clinical trials so they can sell it as a, um, uh, make medical claims but a lot of the people involved in the health and wellness industry just want to get their products out there because they know that um, they they have tremendous um, potential for success and uh, there's a demand out there and, and that's a market that we, we really need to look into and that's the
1: and could I buy it uh, uh, now in New Zealand
3: um, yes under prescription if you have a prescription um um as i say people you know uh if, if they're really keen uh buying it from green fairies and the like so you may have heard of uh that which is sort of going into that sort of gray area the illicit market um and others are ordering it online um but there's a there's a, a worldwide there's but isn't it terrible because i have friends who have their
1: teenage daughter who had anxiety issues and I
3: think period pains for some reason. Mm. I think that Queen Victoria used it for menstrual cramps, you know. Okay. Oh, wow. And um, how do you know
1: that? Anyway, um, they had, uh, they said, oh, they're getting on cabinoids or something and they're getting it online. And my immediate reaction, and I'm sorry to say, but I'm I'm just Joe Public. And I think, oh, you're doping up your kid, you know, because I heard cabinoid.
3: Cannabinoid, yeah. Cannabidiol is the CBD. But it sounds like cannabis. And I actually thought they were
1: giving a medicinal marijuana or cannabis, but it's not. It's something entirely different is what you're telling me.
3: Well, it's not necessarily entirely different because even medicinal cannabis, they can have high THC, but they can also have uh, low THC products that contain, Ah. you know, quite a high amount of, say, CBD, depending on what you're trying to uh, work I'm your worst on. interviewer, aren't I? Because I'm just
1: Joe Pack who hears cannabis and runs a mile, and this
3: all, you, all that this makes stuff. you ideal. Because if, <laughs> if, if we can get you across the line, we've got the I've got hope yeah. in the in the general. Well, population. It's, it's
1: funny you say that because I remember it must have been when the trials come out. But I remember I'm thinking it's 1997 or something. My colleague in Parliament, Ken Shirley, um, reporting to caucus at length. Um, about hemp fiber, and um, he is very scientific, very sound, um, and got a great brain. And I remember thinking, oh, there must be something here if he's into it. And then I sort of forgot about it until now. Um, but it's just interesting that when my friends told me this, and they said they were getting a great result, um, for their daughter, and. I had just assumed she was stoned. <laughs> and <laughs> and I and, and, apologize. I'm going to have to apologize to them. I didn't say anything because I'm too polite, but I thought, oh, yeah, I suppose if you're stoned all day, you feel good.
3: Well, well, but that that would be the point because um, that person probably didn't, you know, and, and a lot of people um, don't want the side effect of being no. stoned. So so their um, health and wellness product, you know, they want CBD and, and the cannabinoids that don't have a psychotropic effect. Yeah. Now some of these might have a psychoactive effect. You know, chamomile yeah. tea yeah. calms you down. That could be considered psychoactive. So, yeah. um, but so that's why I'm stressing the psychotropic because that's the one that THC's got. You know, the high.
5: Yeah. And
3: yeah. and and many of these um, formulations don't have any of that. So and, you know and, they're, they're very safe to be able to be used.
1: And there's also the fiber you've got. F- Food, fibre, and health in your tagline. Yeah. There's the fibre. Now, what is that? I can make a flax skirt or something, or a happy. Uh marriage? yeah,
3: yep, yeah, absolutely. So, so the the fibre is the. You know the 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 third sort of part. You know the growers underpin everything we do, but food, fibre, and health, as you have said, and hopefully we'll get to the get back to the arable um, horticultural yeah. discussion. But but with fibre, we've moved back to an arable crop, so um, it's a um, generally a broad acre crop, and you have. Oh, I see. One. Sorry,
1: sorry, sorry. Just so if I was growing it for health, you're thinking horticulture, and it's grown a certain way. If I'm thinking I'm growing it for the fibre, I'm on a large scale growing it a different way. Is that the
3: point? Absolutely, that's the point. Now so there's...
1: I can't. I don't have um, a paddock of of hemp, and I'm getting the horticultural use of it. I'm getting the fibre. I sort of grow it for a specific purpose.
3: Ultimately, that 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 will be the aim. At the moment, you can be growing it for a dual purpose. So you could grow a seed or a fibre crop, go through and harvest the flowering tops and have those for your health and wellness products. But if you were growing for a health and wellness industry, you would be growing in a horticultural um, way because you wouldn't want your plants to be pollinated. So they would be unpollinated female plants and they would be invariably individual plants, you know. So they would be big, bushy Christmas trees that you're trying to get as much leaf and flowering top out of, whereas in a fibre crop, you're getting very, very, you know, all the plants are very close together because you want lots of stems. You don't want that Okay, I
1: apologise. I got that now, yes. So I'm yeah,
3: and,
1: it and now. It, well, Arab- it's a
3: very interesting topic, that horticultural. So we'll get back to that one. So okay. the next, So going back to fiber.
1: Yeah, I, I'm growing it now for fiber. On. A, you said arable in an arable way, as opposed to horticulture, and what's it? How's it processed, and what's it used for as a fiber?
3: Okay, so if a fibre crop um, is, is processed in a similar way, uh, well, it's harvested in a similar way to the what you do with the seed because you would, in the sense of the seed, you'd put a, um, a forest harvest through the crop on a combine to knock off those tops and they would be threshed and you'd get the seed. And then you can either do another pass and and sickle bar the the stems down, or they can go through at the same time and just be laid out behind the combine. And so suddenly now you've got this seed in the bin, and that's got to, um, you know, you've got to get the moisture out of that real fast. Otherwise, you get a bit of product. And you've got this fiber on the ground. Now, the the fiber can then be baled up. Um, and then uh, stored until it's called for by the processing factory. Now, the problem with that fibre processing is up until about three years ago, we didn't have a fibre processor in New Zealand. But during the COVID period, um, a company, a joint venture between Hemp NZ and Carfields, a big agricultural um, family company down in Ashburton, bought and uh, who had a company called N- uh Uh, Yarn NZ um, installed a processing line into a factory in Christchurch. So now we do have a factory that can, what we call, decorticate the stems of industrial hemp. And what that means is that they take the stem and they remove the long, bast fibre from the outside of the stem and you're left with this inner woody pith that we call the herd or the shiv. And that, that herd and bass fiber are two sort of commodities, as it were, from the stem. So if you've got a whole stem, it's very hard to to deal with. I mean, you can compress it, make it into a hemp wood product, and there's other things you can do. But once you split those up, then you can really um, get started on on the value add, because then we can start talking about the products you can make. So having that decortication process in the country was a, it's a massive step forward for mm. the fibre industry because now we do have, now I can go and buy a bale of hemp fibre, bass fibre, and I can buy um, um, hemp herd. And the herd, if we talk about that first, is, is traditionally it's used in, in overseas countries as a horse bedding or an animal bedding because it's very absorbent. Um, it can also be used in all sorts of ways um, because of it's high cellulose content into paper manufacturing, and that sort of thing. But one of the biggest uses in New Zealand is that it's made into a product called hempcrete. So that's the hemp herd mixed with a lime and water solution, and it makes a, a product like concrete, only maybe a sixth of the weight, doesn't require reinforcing, and it's just a wonderful um, building material. So what, what I mean by building material is it can be used as an internal insulation and an external cladding, although there's all sorts of issues with getting code compliance for new cladding, of course, leaky buildings and things. Um, but the it's a monolithic building approach, so you would just have your boxing and you would tap this um hempcrete mixture which you've mixed in a similar thing to a concrete mixer and you just tap that down into the into your molds or your shuttering remove the shuttering and then you've got an interior wall and an exterior wall wow. done and it's, it's it's truly and and like you know healthy no mold in these buildings um acoustically great thermally great warm in the winter cool in the summer so that's saving you costs of heating and cooling in those those periods um, it's just a phenomenal building material. And people are so now you, making you don't need a
1: issues. cladding, you don't need insulation, and you don't need the
3: jib. No, well, correct, but um you, you would probably still want to render it on the outside, which would okay. be one way of, of uh, protecting it a little bit more okay. with a lime, a breathable lime render. Um that said, you know, the cladding is a bit of an issue, so you might still have to put on some you know, some corrugated iron or some okay, fiberboard right. or some things like that, just until um, it just takes a long time sometimes to get code of compliance for a cladding. Yeah, uh, yeah. But there's work being done on, on these mixtures and um, it's a really exciting space. And like for, you know, tilt slab buildings and there's um, a lot of people wanting to look at panels and using blocks to really speed up the process. Um, and there's a lot of interest of, you know, I, I mean, the, grow your own home yeah you know, so so you know we're trying to and i mean it would it's really suitable for you know community and in, 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 in endeavors like a um you know there's a bit of interest from iwi about you know maybe working on something in the marae and then building you know some homes for the older people and and and, and then you're talking about well, what sort of buildings do you want what's important for that um That market. I mean, is it is it a a five bedroom, five bathroom, or is it more of a a tiny house approach and these sort of Mm. things? And so there's massive potential, and that would really help the industry scale because construction could be a big user of that herd and possibly the fibre, because the fibre could be used for insulation material, like uh, um, you know your bats, and you do see wool bats, and there used to be a hemp wool bat. Made by New Wool Products down in Nelson many years ago, um, and and so it, it has been done in the past. And these products are, you know, could really um, help put the economics together because suddenly something like that that's using a lot of raw material that means yeah. that there's now a bankable business plan for somebody to put in another decortication unit because they know if they can process the um, fibre. The the stems, they've got a market for them. And, of course, these are bioregional developments as well, Rodney. You know, these things, these uh, bankable business plans around, for example, a decorticator, have to happen close to where the crop is grown because yep, transport yep. would kill you otherwise. So, so now you're looking at regional development. You know, we're we're out near the farmers. Those, those initial primary processing factories have to be close to where the farming goes on, which is going to attract more people and more opportunities. And then, you know, if you're making a, uh, if you're processing the seed, you know, drying seed and things like that, then you've got all sorts of um, you know, tech people that need to be done for testing and you know, there's that, transport companies and all sorts of things are affected.
1: And that herd was the outside of the stem?
3: So, well, the, the best fibre in two layers on the outside of the stem, and this herd is the inner woody sort of pith.
1: Okay. And okay, and so the outs, what was it that made the concrete-like thing? Was that the outside or the inside?
3: That was the inside. That's the okay. herd.
1: What do you do with the outside? Anything?
3: Right. So th- these are bass fibres. So... um Back in the day when um, when there was fleets of sailing ships going around, you know, that was the heyday for um, natural fibres, especially hemp because hemp rope and hemp for sails um, lasted a long time compared to some of the um, other raw materials, that, natural fibres that they had available at the time. Mm. So when... When um you know the ships came to New Zealand, um, they discovered of course um, Halikiki, the local flax, and that had very similar properties. So they thought well that's great. we don't have to grow a whole lot of hemp in New Zealand. we'll we'll um, set up the penal colony in New South Wales and grow hemp over there. Um, so, you know, we, we dodged a bullet there, um, but, you know, there, there was real use of these fibres in producing the rope and the sails, but also the uniforms that they wore, the oil that they used in their um, for writing, the, the paper that they wrote on in their maps, they would have all been made of hemp as well. The forking that they used in their boats to seal them and waterproofing would all been hemp, and uh, the oil in their lamps would have been hemp seed oil to light their um, lamps and things, so it had a massive effect. But from the point of view of the fibre, it's really um, traditionally a textile has been a big user, and there's some lovely fabrics. I mean, this is naturally antifungal, antibacterial, anti-static, antimicrobial. So for those reasons, it really suits um, linen for hospital bedding and things like that. These industrial type um, applications, hotels. Um, and it, and and of course all the way through to you know apparel and shirts and jeans and you know the original things that would have been made from recycled sails like Levi's would have been made from industrial hemp in the day. So, in your vision, you can see not
1: only a big uh, crop, but a huge industry growing out of uh, hemp.
3: But sure. You know, the, the value add is, is massive. And that, and that's part of our problem, you know, we've got too many points, not enough penetration. Yeah. You know, yeah. where do you go? Um, because people will say to me, you know, oh, well, can you make textiles? And and yes, we can. Um, but in New Zealand, we don't have the infrastructure that we used to have around weaving. Is there we've
1: anywhere got, in the world that this is all happening?
3: Uh China. Um, is, is one example um France is is an example they have had 700 years of uninterrupted industrial hemp use um, but they don't have a massive um, again if we're looking at textiles for for clothing um, they don't have a lot of infrastructure there so um, their fiber if they can get their fiber processed into a fine enough, Um, sliver that they can make into a yarn that can be spun into, as I say, into a yarn, then that can go into a weaving machine or a knitting machine. But those machines, you know, might be in Italy, in the case of Europe, that actually make these wonderful Mm -hmm. fabrics. Um, Or it might be in Hungary and Romania, because um, there's still been a traditional use of it in those countries in Europe. Uh, China has gone, you know, a really step forward because they've um, watch this market develop and uh, and have move with the market, and they have the ability to um, you know make it scale. So yeah. although we may not be able to weave it ourselves here, we could be sending off value added fiber in forty four gallon drums of sliver that the Chinese or the Europeans then send Got back it. as fabric, while we attract those, yeah. you know, Italians to come down and share their knowledge about weaving. And and, and we, we, you know, sorry, really, but I should mention, you know, New Zealand companies in the sense. Um, hemp Merino is is a blend. They make a lovely beanies and jumpers um, mixing the hemp fibre with Merino wool. So there's some real big complements here for primary production as well, mm. wool particularly um, with these fibres.
1: Is it hard to grow?
3: This is one of the benefits, really. I mean, we're talking about an annual crop, so we would sow it in anywhere from October to December and it would be harvested in January and sort of uh, March, early April, depending on where you are in the country um, because it's a, a phyto day length, so it it, it it reflects how the um, summer days, when they start drawing in, the plant will start producing seed once it's pollinated and that sort of thing. So it grows in sort of, a, you know, your fibre crop might be out in 90 to 100 days. Your seed crop might be 120 days. Um, it's grown in a similar sort of uh, time frame as maize, so over the summer period. It's great in rotation. Uh, we need a lot more New Zealand-specific studies done to find out You know, the benefits of have we removed nematodes from the soil, which means the potato crop goes better afterwards, or does the yield of another crop um, benefit from having hemp as the preceding crop? So we need to understand, you know, there's, there's evidence from overseas, but there's nothing quite like New Zealand specific information to really make a difference. And so to understand how it fits in our farming rotation is a big part of it. Um, There's a lot of interest around um, the CO2 sequestration being a plant. Um, And we're a bioaccumulator, so we grow a lot of biomass in a very short period of time. Mm. So we have the potential to really be that CO2 um, sequester. And then a lot of that, especially if it's in the roots, can be left in the soil. So quantifying that will have some gains because if we can – um, include that in the number for the on-farm discussions around CO2 emissions and things. That's got to be good. We may not, because crops aren't included in the emissions trading scheme. We may have to look at other uh, markets for those carbon credits, but they'll be developing because, as you'll be aware, you know, if there's a market, somebody's going to put the market together. You know, and mm-hmm. there'll be a some sort of um, exchange to be able to do that. Um, but the the benefits of growing it um, in, include you know, it can be grown very organically, and that would be definitely the way to go if you were grown for seed because there's that benefit of extra marketing from the organic aspect. Um, but it doesn't require a lot of chemical inputs. You know, it is a gross nitrogen feeder, so we do like a bit of nitrogen, but that's not a problem if you're in rotation with a dairy you know, herd that's pouring nitrogen into the ground, so that's not a bad thing. Um, it doesn't require, you know, if, if you can get good establishment with your crop, and it can get a canopy going quicker. It, it, it can outcompete the weeds, so you may need less um, herbicides. Um, there, there will be ultimately pests and diseases that we have to consider. But at the moment, there's not a lot. You know, some caterpillars and some you know things, and we need to ha- keep an eye on. But um, because it doesn't have a lot of pests and things, you might need less insecticides um and and you know from a nutritional point of view it can be uh, great at building up that humus layer and if we have again a bit more studies in new zealand we'll understand a little bit more around some of the phytoremediation benefits and what we're talking about there is phyto plants remediating soil so we're mm-hmm. using using plants to break up compacted soils because you know, if we've got a root structure that can break it up and then we can help with that sort of thing. But, in, but particularly, it has um, been noted that, um, and some studies have, have confirmed, that it can help lift heavy metals out of the ground. So if you, you know, it wasn't too long ago that we were spraying DDT everywhere and things like that. I mean, you know, that's no longer productive land, particularly for food. But if we can get in there and use plants to help shift that out, um, then there's a, a tremendous opportunity there to recondition and clean soils.
1: Do you you have been at this a long time?
3: Uh, yeah, I, I joined um, the association with Mac in about ninety ninety eight. So yeah, and and uh, Mac re, um, retired as the chair about three or four years ago. So, so
1: you've been at this for twenty five years
3: not full-time I'm an accountant by trade so um it's it's uh but that and now I just do bookkeeping so it gives me the flexibility to to follow this but it's but, it's a time whose idea has come Rodney. you're I mean. passionate right oh for sure and there's loads of um there's many many of us <laughs> but we're just not again we we've got that um image problem and we're not getting out we're not telling our story well enough for people to be um engaged and and therefore we're not attracting the end users which are the people that are going to turn this industry on because we we can grow it we've just discussed how it's good for the you know the farmer to grow so the grow you know the farmer is willing to grow it but because of the land value in New Zealand they've got to get a return and they know, mm-hmm. What the return is from maize or from cattle or from cows or whatever. So, we need to get, you know, make sure that we can add value and process it and afford to pay the farmer a good amount of money for them to grow it. And therefore, what markets are willing to pay that possibly a premium price to begin with as their raw materials or ingredients in their business plan. So, we need those. Um, end users to come along, particularly to things like the summit, to hear what it is all about. Because well, if, if we can do find it, a competent yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry.
1: It's 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 an amazing story. You've got the summit coming up in Christchurch, I can see, uh, at the ridges, uh, on the what is it, the 24th and 25th of August this year. Yes. What will the summit, who will be there and what will it achieve, you hope?
3: Well, there'll there'll be, uh, there's room for 200 odd um, uh, attendees. So we're hoping it'll be like we had in 2018 at our first summit, a sellout, that'd be great. Um, There'll be, in past summits, we've had a bit of a range of people involved in, um, a lot of farmers in the first summits. So we're anticipating that some of the farmers will be still present because they're interested in it as, as an alternate land use. Um, all of the universities and eco, you know, the RD ecosystem, the, the Crown Research Institutes, the Callaghan yeah. Innovation, Bioprocessing Alliance, AGMART, you know, and Agmart has been fantastic for us in the past and supporting us. But those um R and D ecosystems are very engaged with industrial hemp. They can see the potential, and some of these things are just for scientists. It's like you mentioned phenols and you know little extracts that you know are present there. And if we could get them out by the kilogram, they're worth hundreds and thousands or thousands of dollars. You know, and wow. it's like some in some cases, you know. So there's a lot of excitement there for the R and D community because they can see that this has been a plant that hasn't been studied for. 90 odd years because of prohibition there's a huge demand for all sorts of tech so we're trying to attract tech people along to understand that hey you know in within the next 10 years we can either spend a lot of money paying the europeans or the north americans for a license to use their technology or we can develop that tech in new zealand and export that Mm -hmm. so there's product that we can export but also you know processing equipment you know um tech in the sense of um you know patented products or trade secrets and formulations and things like that so a massive amount that you know the trade secrets with regard to maybe new zealand botanicals for that health market and things like that so those tech people need to be there we really want you know the government and the regulator um the regulators will be presenting so we'll have a session on that um, but really that, you know, what we really, really, really need in there is these end users. Who is going to um, see the value of going, oh my gosh, I make a composite product. There's a, an e-bike manufacturer in um, Wellington and um, they use hemp in the composite. Um, I think it's part of their, the paneling that they have for their, for their storage part of the bike. Now, you know, it would be great to have um, Team New Zealand and when the America, yes. you know, America's yes. cut powered by a hemp <laughs> component in their boat. Um because we're we're right up there with carbon fiber in a lot of these cases. We're light, oh. you know, we can really be used in those those natural, as I said, antifungal, antibacterial, anti-static, antimicrobial, you know, medical devices, filters, absorption. You know there's a lot of um industries out there you know the oils that we talked about they're not all going to be human food grade there's going to be some that's animal which we have an issue with if you want to we can take a deep dive on that as well um, but there's also industrial oils abrasives, lubricants that you know could be used i mean this is a chemical treasure trove if you start to talk about circular economy and bio refineries i mean you know It was only 100 and something odd years ago, 150 years ago, that we all started using um, fossil fuels. Now, Henry Ford at the time was saying, well, whatever you can make out of hydrocarbons, you can make out of carbohydrates. Mm. Now, of course, we decided to use the easy fossil fuels route, um, and we've ultimately set up a whole um, value chain around that. Now, we can replicate that using carbohydrates, of course, but it's going to take some time. So there's a lot of opportunities in there.
1: How extraordinary. And this is because, you mentioned 90 years, this plant was demonized as a crop because of the drug, and therefore it's not been looked at in terms of its food, fiber, and health and industry uses because of that. Is that? is that the situation really it's been 90 years of not being looked at
3: in many, in many cases yes Rodney so in, in 1937 the marijuana act, tax act so it was taxed out of existence in, by the americans in 1937 and then you had this reefer madness yeah, um, come yeah. in, which, which, as you said, demonized <coughs> industrial hemp and, and lumped it all in with uh, marijuana, a Mexican slang word for, for cannabis. and wow. and, it, and no one knew what marijuana was. So when they introduced the Marijuana Tax Act, the American Medical Association said, I, I don't know what marijuana is, so I'm not worried about it. You know, the, the seed and grain industry said, well, I don't know what marijuana is, so I'm not worried about it. Until they didn't have in case of the seed and grain industry you know the canary birds love the hemp seed in their meal in their in their in their grain for food and suddenly the the manufacturers realize that oh if we they've outlawed marijuana which means that i can't grow hemp which means i don't have hemp seed and the medicinal people who you know cannabis tinctures were in the you know three of the top ten um medical preparations in the american pharmacopeia up until the late 1800s so you know cannabis was being used as a medicine for many many years eli lily you know park davies these were they all made products that had cannabis in them and of course they all went and the american medical association just couldn't believe it you know it was like oh man wow no you know, you can't do this and then it was too late um so That's extraordinary and and there was a lot of and then that flowed around the world of course and the UN convention in 1961 but so there's been some traditional use you know the 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 Nepal and the Chinese and the and the French I mentioned before they've they've continued to use industrial hemp and we're just starting to get back into that but we've got the same technology for this decortication process that we were talking about with regard to the primary processing of fiber crops um, is using the same hammer mill action that they did you know, 100, 200 years ago. Sure. Well, to be fair, it was manual. And then in 1917, a guy called Shitland came up with a mechanical process, and that was patented in 1937. And in 1938, the, the Popular Mechanics magazine, which is a it's still going now, but had a, um, an article saying the billion-dollar crop. And it was talking about all the uses of hemp fibre that could now be um, obtained because they had this mechanical process that allowed them to um, be able to use a lot more stems and create a lot more um, herd and fibre because it was mechanical. Now, of course, in 1938, that was a year after the Marijuana Tax Act came in. So unfortunately for old Mr. Shitland, it was um, bad timing because his device never went any further than that. And that was that was only a mechanical device. So we've we we we've got decorticators now, but the same mill action. But, you know, with new technology, I mean, in New Zealand, we could look at geothermal, um, you know, using thermal explosion. We could use um, ultrasonics. There's all sorts of new science around yes. that can be applied, applied to this. And given that the high quality of these raw materials, you know, we've talked about the quality of the fiber, the quality of the seed, the connect you know, there's a treasure trove of five hundred chemicals and the leaf and the flowering tops and things. This is just uh, the beginning of a wonderful future about and because if we and can break it down. And it's a resource
1: that has been on ice for since nineteen thirty seven. Correct. Uh, and so this is
3: a renewable resource grown yeah. every year. Wow. Um which is good to grow. So wow. in
1: well, Richard, I would like to have you back, if I may, if you'd be willing, because I'd like to cover off two things. I mean, I did. I'm I'm the worst example because I just thought, oh, yeah, hemp, um, marijuana, you know, Rastafarian, dope smoker. But this is what you're saying is this is a, an industry, a product that hasn't been properly used or studied with all the new techniques and understandings that we have for all this time. And so it's an undiscovered resource in terms of modern times because of legislation. Um, so it's remarkable. It was a remarkable. And I, I, I'm, I've actually picked up on your passion. Um, I'd like to do two things, if I may. I'd love to have you back, and I'd love to cover off how you got into this and how you've sustained yourself because in terms of enthusiasm, because I don't know, imagine when you're young, you start out and you think, oh, yeah, a couple of years, I'll put my mind to this and we'll have an industry up and running. And here we yes. are. Um, so I'd love to cover off all of that, those disappointments and highs and where you've got to. And I'd also love to cover off this whole history of how this product um, was, what you know, demonised because of the cannabis part of it, the THC part of it, and therefore countless industries affected. Because that, to me, is quite a remarkable story. Would you be up for that?
3: Um, yes, and there's, there's, um, I can put you in touch with other people. Um, oh, great. That, that um have a have an interest in that space as well the 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 big one um that we haven't sort of talked about uh in, in the sense of an ind- affecting industry is the situation with the animal food but that's you know a, quite a um a big I'll conversation that too. um but yeah happy to happy we'll to have talk. A, well
1: you've done you've done me uh, a wonderful service because you've opened my eyes and I have to say when I went to your webpage just what is your webpage again it's the industrial hemp
3: so, nzhaa.com is the New Zealand Hemp Industries Association's yes. uh, website, and hemp summit.nz is um, for the promotion for the summit this year great, and great. Uh, that's as you mentioned 24th to the 25th of August down in Christchurch we're hoping to have a bit of a day before and definitely have a welcome event on that Wednesday and um, we'll have our NZHIA AGM but um, that afternoon but it'll be great it'll be a big two days of uh, sharing information looking at the gaps in the value chain because they're the ones that need plugging as you said you know is it science or an understanding you know these are things that we need to develop to make the economics economics and the environmental implications come to light and and so that that's really the tagline of the summit this year is taking action we want we you know, as you can imagine Rodney, out know, 2024 20, 25 years, it's now time to take action you know we we want resilient supply chains around building materials we want resilient supply chains around food and and health outcomes mm-hmm. you know we need to take action now because it's going to take some time to bring in a, you know, more decorticators more machinery well, more value add
1: well value-add. good for you uh thank you richard that was richard Barch. he's the chairperson of the new zealand hemp industry association as it turns out i always thought it was a sort of sneaky way of getting cannabis into the country but now i can see it that we've had this whole industry and plant and everything it can do um put on ice because of marijuana and lost a lot of opportunity. And what Richard's saying is there's a big opportunity here for New Zealand, big opportunity for lots of countries, uh, particularly with uh, new technology, because for 90 years uh, this plant hasn't been looked at with technology. That was a very real talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio. Thank you for tuning in. What a wonderful guy. We'll talk to him again, because I want to find out how you keep going against all odds.
0: Talk soon. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10am.
1: You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And right now, one of my favourite bits, the mailbag. I can't wait till we have it that you can just call in and we can chat live. That'll be so much fun. But uh, until then... We have texts and emails. You can text me at 2057 and email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio. Here we go. Here's one from Brett. Hi, Rodney. Transgender ideology and puberty blockers are being pushed and it is part of the climate change narrative to reduce carbon. Humans are carbon-based life forms and humans exhale Exhale carbon. Climate change ideology is a death cult. People need to wake up before they're slaughtered by the WEF and their global allies. Regards, Brett. Well, I don't know, but my goodness. The one thing we have learned this past little while is almost anything is possible, but certainly the pushing of transgenderism is a cult, and it's not a healthy one. It's definitely a tox, toxic one. Climate change, likewise, not healthy, and certainly negative to human life. Both these are. Uh, they're certainly not healthy, and they certainly <laughs> don't lead to a, a growing, happy population. One is you can't use fossil fuels. The other is you cut your bits off. My goodness. Uh, here's one from Gerald. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed your discussion with Professor Elizabeth Rada. My goodness, Elizabeth Rada, she's great. I really, really could have her on every day. She's so knowledgeable and got so much to contribute. Ingrid, loved your interview with Kathy Jameson. Remember her? She was the lady that was uh, analysing and figuring out the adverse event reporting for the vaccine. What a tenacious person as she wades through all the muddied waters of calm. You're also very knowledgeable, Rodney. Uh, I don't know. I try. And it was good to get your clarifications on technical stuff. Thank you for taking us all through that at a pace we could handle. Heartwarming to hear that real action might come of this. We need accountability. Well, that's very kind and good. Thank you. I actually... Go slow because I am slow. It takes me a long time to figure things out, and I think it's helpful as we uh, do interviews. If I was a lot smarter, um, if I was a lot smarter, I'd probably go a lot quicker. But then things get confusing, so it is me. Uh, here's one from Andrew. Good morning, Rodney. You mention of a power imbalance between the borrower and the lender. Reminded me of advice given years ago when interest rates on first mortgages were up to 24%. Gosh, imagine it, 24%. We wouldn't want to be back there, would we? Who knows? Uh, 24%, I remember that. Never ask a banker how much is the interest rate to borrow so you're in the business of buying money. What are you selling it for? Never ask a banker, how much is the interest rate to borrow? Tell them you're in the business of buying money and what are you selling it for? Oh, I see. Yes, 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 I get it. So you're not asking them the interest rate, you're asking them what they're selling their money for. Got it. So much per year or month or whatever. Uh, here's one. Uh, Rodney, could you please ask why, when the bank do a credit check, your credit rating goes Down, please. Thanks. Well, I don't know. I imagine you can ask the bank why it went down. I imagine they could do a credit rating and it go up. I don't know. Hi, Rodney. Have you heard of Drs. Mark and Samantha Bailey? I have. Look up their work on the virus, Ford. Might be too hot even for RCR. John, I actually have been in contact with them. That's a very good call. I should get uh, Samantha on. I have read their book. And I loved it. I find it very interesting, this whole debate about um, viruses
5: and what causes them. I don't know the answer to that. But um,
1: when you ask these questions, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you start reading online about things and people say, huh, huh, you're doing your own research. and It's like they're taking the mickey and belittling you. But what is doing your own research actually? It means reading and inquiring. And why wouldn't we read and inquire and actually conduct our own research? That's what being responsible, a responsible human being is about when we get the opportunity. Of course, we want to figure things out. And we don't, well, I probably do sneer at people that just take the advice of experts without asking questions and finding out for themselves. My goodness, do your own research. Yes, I will try and get uh, Mark and Samantha Bailey on. Uh, hi, Rodney. My missus was labeled a drug seeker at the top of her file for many of the same reasons as Sarah. Remember, Sarah King with EDS? Q hospital treated us like criminals during our son's birth year because of their labelling of her. Ah, it's amazing. I hadn't heard of that, that you can be perfectly legitimate and just get that on your file. Ah, here's one from Dean. What a stunning, revealing, and poignant interview with Sarah. That was truly amazing. Totally honest and sad. Wishing her all the best. Thanks, Rodney. Great work. Regards, Jonathan. Uh, our oh, Dean said, Sarah, wow, she was amazing. Sarah Kang, a lady suffering EDS all those years and fighting through it against all odds. Hi, Rodney. Uh, can you explain Australia's system, political system to ours as they seem to have a differing one? That is a merge of Americas with the Senates and state controls, etc., cetera, and ours with the Prime Minister and the monarchy. Thanks, Tanya. I would love to, but I'd have to get someone on. I'll try and think of someone. I don't know anything about the Australian political system, but I'm sure we can find someone and we'll talk to them. Uh, Here's one from Mike. Rodney, I seem to remember that we had a referendum and the country decided that they didn't want MMP and wanted to go back to FPP. Why didn't that happen when it was clear that MMP was not wanted by the vast majority of the citizens of a democratic country? Cheers, Mike. Hmm. We had a referendum in... We chose MMP. I don't remember. I think there was something, or there was a push to have it revisited, and I can't remember. I think you might be right, Mike. i gotta, I got to look into that. You may well be right. Dear Rodney, MMP, I'm confused. Oh, So am I. So grassroots political parties have no show. No, I wouldn't say that. It's just tough. It's a lot harder than you think, and for some reason... Voters tend to go, you know, with the existing parties always. And in fact, for as long as we can remember, there's only one party that's broken into Parliament from outside, and that was the ACT Party when MMP first arrived. And in order to break through, we had to have significant political figures who had been in Parliament Derek Quigley and Richard Preble, to get us over the 5%. And every other party was already in Parliament. They had MPs already in Parliament who would stand for their new party. And it's getting that profile and being recognised as a politician. And for some reason, when outsiders stand, we don't vote for them. It's like we don't know them politically. Uh, It's very, very strange and very, very tough for outsiders to break in, and it's not helped because the insiders design the rules, and surprise, surprise, uh, they design the rules to keep it for them. And likewise, journalists report what's happening in Parliament and what's happening in politics is what's in Parliament, and they don't report what's happening outside in politics. Very, very tough. Uh, Great show, Rodney. You put us off doing our housework, not wanting to miss anything with your great guests. Cheers, Jackie. We do get great guests. Each week I worry, oh, I'm going to run out of guests, and then people turn up, and they're so wonderful. Here's one from Tom. Great show. One of the things that struck me was when you reminded us that the trans community call it genocide for daring to criticize them. No outcry from the government, but when those of us dared compare the Othering of those of us who were unjabbed or who were forced to show an exemption card to buy food to Nazi Germany in the 1930s, we were accused of being anti-Semites. Ludicrous, clearly. But the trans community seemed to be able to do exactly the same thing with impunity. Madness. Keep up the great work. Love your comments on Kiwi blog also. Oh, well, thank you, Tom. It is extraordinary. There is such a double standard, you know, everyone's a racist. Um but the government is actually instituting racist left, right, and centre. Uh, here's one. This is a long one from the Hermitists. I'll just read you the top. Thank you for the good work you're doing on Real Talk with RCR, the positive effects of what you're being noticed. Oh, that's lovely. To all the RCR team, you are light on the path of truth for all who seek it. Throth protected you and light your way. Thoth protect you. And like your way. thank you so much. And then there's a long email, um, which I forwarded to Sarah. So, um, thank you for that. The Hermitist, 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 Simon. I'm a long time listener, first time commenter. Your politics discussion with Tane Webster is a great addition to your show. Thank you. I have some questions regarding our politics and particularly the political party structures that maybe you can help with and could be of interest to other listeners. Maybe for the next politics session with Tāne. Yes, indeed. I've got your questions and we're going to go through them, Simon. So thank you for that. We'll cover them then. Um, We've got one here from Henk. What a wonderful conversation and directed interview. A pure diamond like Professor Elizabeth Rata screaming at our shit-steering society and at our so-called new unwilling and blind leaders. There is no one so blind and so deaf as those who are unwilling to see and hear. And also, thank you to you, Rodney. She should have been nominated for Dame instead of Jacinda Ardern. Amen to that. She and others should be given all the support that is required. This barrow needs to be pushed hard to save our society as we have known it years back. We are fearful for our six grandchildren, ages between 11 and 18. Thank you. We appreciate your work. May harmony and peace be with you, Hank. Well, that's very lovely. Thank you. And you do feel that with these postmodernism, tribalism, critical race theory that is being pushed at our schools and universities on our young people. And it is a total threat to what Professor Rata calls universalist principles, which is to live free and prosperous in what we have dubbed Western civilization. But of course, it's not peculiar to an area or an ethnic group, it's a set of ideas from
5: the Greeks, from the Romans, from the British. And we're individuals, uh, everything not
1: the group. And now we're reverting to where the group is everything and the individual nothing. Frightening. Hi, Rodney. Who was on your show the other night discussing Marxism and communism influencing New Zealand? I've been trying to remember his name to look up his website. Cheers, Byron. That was Trevor Loudon. Uh, and I think his site is Real New Zealand, but Google his name. Here's from Anne. Kathy's interview on the adverse reporting was excellent. Uh, We have some fantastic Kiwis. Don't we just? Don't we have fantastic Kiwis? And it's a great pleasure to meet them, interview them, and to bring them into your house and then to hear from you. So thank you for emailing us and texting us. Please keep it up. Text 2057, email inbox at realitycheck.radio. We love hearing from you.
0: Thank you for listening. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio.
1: It's Real Talk with uh, Rodney Hyde. So, Cabinet Minister Michael Wood has been stood down, I don't know, from some portfolios, all portfolios, don't know, but he's. In a bit of trouble, he's been stood down while his conflicts of interests are investigated. I try very hard, always, not always successfully, not to take pleasure in other people's misfortune.
5: But when it comes to the Honourable Michael Wood, total exception.
1: Total, total exception. I are revelling in the fact that he's in the news, that he's in the naughty corner, that he's been stood down, that his ambition to be leader of the Labour Party and Prime Minister has been thwarted, and that he may not get back to Cabinet. I hope he
5: doesn't. And it's for this reason. He gave the most horrible speech in Parliament I've ever heard against New Zealanders. And I'm going to read the
1: extract, all of which uh, you will be familiar with, but I want to read it and then go through his present troubles so we can consider his troubles in context. So this is Michael Wood standing up in, important to think of this, our House of
5: Representatives. So he stood up in Parliament representing all of us. When you
1: stand up to talk in Parliament, of course you're talking on behalf of your constituents, of course you're a member of your political party, but it's a house of representatives. You're representing all of New Zealand. And on the 16th of February,
5: 2022, this was Michael Wood. Quote The words I say now, I say with some precision. And I say
1: really carefully, because I think we need to take great care with this. So he's making it very plain. He's not hot headed or flying off the handle,
5: he's taking great care about what he's about to say. Out the front of this place, uh,
1: meaning Parliament, and describing the protest, there are people who I think we all feel for. Oh, don't you hate that? We feel for you. Uh, Go. We're not talking to you. No, they didn't
5: feel for us. And he goes on. There are some people who are confused. There
1: are some people who are scared. There are some people who have been manipulated by an avalanche of misinformation. There are people who have been hurt over the past couple of years and they're
5: lashing out. We feel for those people. Well, they didn't feel enough to come and listen to us. They didn't care enough for us to hear what we had to say. No, they had us trespassed and supported the Speaker in turning the sprinklers on and playing loud music and supported the police in their violence to push us off the front lawn of our Parliament, our Parliament. So that caring are just words, Michael. And you're caring and then saying,
1: oh, we're all confused and led by misinformation and don't know what we're talking about. How do you know that we were so when you absolutely refused to meet with us and belittled us? And then he goes on. So there's outside the parliament, oh yes, there are some good caring people who are just misinformed and scared and
5: uh, upset. But underneath it all, quote, there is a river of filth. There is a river of violence and menace. There is a
1: river of anti-Semitism. There is a river of Islamophobia. There is a river of threats to people who work in this place and our staff. So the th- things that we should not in any way be condoning. Things that we should be apologists for. Things that we should be overlooking with the rhetoric. That it's all just good people, and maybe we should talk about it, and maybe we should put the mandates up for negotiation. I would say that there is a river of genuine fascism in parts of the event that we see out the front of this Parliament today. I just urge colleagues in this House, decent and honourable members of the centre-right, parliamentary parties in this Parliament, that a lot is actually on them to not give succour and comfort to an emergence and dangerous far-right movement.
5: I just ask those members to reflect upon that. So, largest protest I've ever seen, longest protest, clearly,
1: only protest broken up violently by police outside our parliament. And we were either lovely people misinformed or anti-Semites, violence, menace, Islamophobes, fascists.
5: We were one or the other, but we were certainly being led by that. And what was the context? We had been locked down in our houses, forced to close our businesses, made to stand outside supermarkets in the freezing rain, standing on our dock waiting to get in, forced to wear masks, keep our distance. Our kids had to look at their favourite playground, locked up with hazard tape, keep
1: away. People had to avoid us and our children and
5: keep their distance. We were locked down by Mr Wood and locked up. And we know for no gain, there was no point to it, and we could see it then, it was never explained, any questions were dismissed, and our leaders abused us for daring to ask why.
1: We then were subjected to, oh, I'm going to choose my words carefully, an experimental jab. It was an experiment. Clearly it was an experiment. It hadn't been through any testing. Even if it had been full 10 years of testing, it's still somewhat of an experiment because something like 20% of all drugs get withdrawn as they're rolled out. But no, these things were developed at warp speed. And we were promised they were safe and effective and we'd get our two jabs and we could get back to normal. The jabs were safe and effective. No, we were lied to. No one could know whether they'd be safe and effective because they'd never been tested or trialled. They were experimental
5: by definition. And if you didn't take your jab, you were declared
1: by the government, by our parliament, including all the opposition parties, to be a
5: second-class citizen and to lose your job. We now know that that jab was useless and dangerous.
1: We don't know the extent of the danger, but it was significant. People have died from taking that jab. People who were never at risk from COVID have died because they had to take the jab to live as a citizen in New Zealand or to keep their job. And so we protested. We protested the tyrannical abuse of power And we protested the psychological manipulation. And we protested the deep division that was created and rent right through New Zealand and exists still to this day. And for that, Michael Wood called us anti-Semites, Islamophobes, Nazis, fascists, extremists,
5: or misguided and stupid. So, I have no time for him. None whatsoever. And I'm reveling and enjoying his current misfortune. My only problem is it's just him. Every MP let us down, every MP abused us, every MP refused to meet with us. And I'm also upset that he's in trouble for something as
1: trivial. Well, it's not trivial, it's very serious. Not declaring his
5: Auckland shares or his shares in Auckland Airport. But compared to the lockdowns,
1: the masking, the jab, the mandates, The
5: abuse, Auckland shares, not disclosing them, small beer. But I
1: don't have any sympathy for him, and I'm rather enjoying it. Just by the way, this is what he did or didn't do. In 1998, a young Mr. Wood at 17 years old and a member of Young Labour and future president of Young Labour bought some Auckland shares. Why? (laughs) He was Labour. Labour was opposed to privatisation, opposed to the sale of shares. But young Michael Wood, at 17, while campaigning for Labour, bought the shares. You can see why he'd be a little embarrassed about them. So 18 years later, he's elected to Parliament and he still has his shares. Now, you're supposed to declare your interests when you enter Parliament. Big thing for Labour to declare your interests. 2017, he doesn't declare. 2018, he doesn't declare. 2019, he doesn't declare. 2020, he doesn't declare. Now, when you do this declaration... You fill out the form and you sign your name. Like, it's a big deal. So he did that four times and never declared his shares. And by the way, at some stage, he met and married and he transferred his shares to a trust that carries his wife's name. So he knew enough to shift the shares across to a trust. So it wasn't like He'd forgotten all about them. Obviously, when he formed the trust, he knew they existed. In 2020, Mr. Wood becomes Minister of Transport, and he tells the Cabinet Office about the shares, and
5: he promises to sell them. He never did. He made a promise and didn't deliver. But get
1: this, the Cabinet Office according to news reports, reminded
5: him six times. Six times to sell the shares.
1: I can't understand this. I can understand being neglectful and forgetting about something. But if the cabinet office is telling you to do something as a minister, trust me, you do it. You jump because this is big trouble. He was told six times, and each time he ignored the cabinet office. He then submits his parliamentary interest form. Remember, having advised the previous year, the cabinet that he has the shares, so he knew he owned the shares because he told the cabinet and he didn't put them down.
5: And it was only in 2022 that he puts them in his parliamentary declaration. Still hasn't sold the shares. It's bad enough that he has some conflict of interest. That's bad. It's terrible that he didn't declare that conflict of interest. But what is
1: truly shocking as he was told multiple
5: times that he had to divest the shares to get rid of the conflict, and he didn't. I can't understand that bit. That's either shocking
1: incompetence, which means he shouldn't be a minister, or shocking arrogance, which means he shouldn't be a minister. And given
5: what he said in Parliament, He shouldn't be a minister, and probably both are true, arrogant and ignorant. Here's an interesting thing. I don't understand
1: how this story became news. How did we find out that he owned the shares? I don't know the answer to this. Could it be that someone on his own team have leaked on him?
5: I hope so, because, like I said at the start, after what this guy said about people who were damaged
1: and injured, people who had lost loved ones because of the jab, people who were suffering in
5: torment day in and day out, month after month, year after year, and came to Parliament, to air their views, he dismissed them as a river of filth. And so, Mr. Michael Wood, I'm afraid I am revelling in your discomfort.
1: I'm also revelling in the fact that you put your wife in the doo-doo too because the shares were in a trust in her name and she's an Auckland City Councillor. She didn't declare them either.
5: So they're both in the cactus. Well, they may be nice people at a personal level, but you don't get to clear a big chunk of New Zealand a river of filth led by Nazis and just walk away. You chose the words carefully. You said very carefully, so we understand
1: exactly what you think of us. I understand perfectly what you think of me. So don't be surprised that I don't have any sympathy for you now that you're in trouble. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Radity Check Radio me a text, 2057. Send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Thank you for listening.
0: On RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio.
1: It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening in today. Remember, I'd love to receive your texts. Text me at 2057. I love your emails, inbox at realitycheck.radio. If you have messages for our guests, I always pass them on. And what great guests we have. Gemma Verhoeven telling us about her experience of EDS. What a shocking disease. I'd never heard of it until we had Sarah King. Uh, on discussing earlier this this shocking disease and how hard it is for a medical system, the way we have it set it up to get to the underlying cause and to be always treating symptoms as bad as they are.
5: And how inspirational is it to see how strong Gemma is and Sarah
1: to confront this disease head on and to face it and to overcome it, and then all the the medical system and friends and family—amazing story. Um, I found it very inspirational, and I'm I'm never going to complain again. <laughs> not have to hear what these poor ladies have been through. And also, I so enjoyed interviewing Richard Barge. I sort of did expect the dope smoking, rastafarian, hey man, everything's cool. But it was so interesting that this plant hemp has been used in so many ways historically and then because of the concern over marijuana was prohibited and banned for 80-odd years around the world and so we've lost its potential and the opportunity for technology to develop it And there's Richard Barge and his crew talking about it for 20 years and what the potential is and the struggle to even get the opportunity to get that industry up and running. And I have to say, I was skeptical, but now I'm interested and I'm keen to have Richard back and talk some more, both about how he has kept going and also about hemp and its uses because, like I said, it was a complete uh, bombshell to me. Thank you for listening. Uh, do send me a text, 2057, and email it in at inbox at I'm loving the show. I'm loving interviewing such amazing New Zealanders and learning so much about our great country and the opportunities that we have and what blessed people we have amongst us. And I'm loving talking to you and getting your feedback. I feel very close. And I'm loving the opportunity to talk freely about the things that concern us without, mm. what's that? That social approbation that operates everywhere whenever you try and have a conversation and talk about things. And. I'm a free speech absolutist. And I
5: think we should all be able to have our say. And on Reality Check Radio, we can. Thank you for tuning in.